0: hello and welcome to fringe legal the show where we discuss bite-sized information on innovation transformation and knowledge management as it relates to the legal profession on the podcast and the newsletter we talk a lot about innovation and transformation specifically in relation to the legal profession as a whole but sometimes it's useful to step back and take a macro view because after all law is a construct that needs to fit within the society and it needs to be human centered and that's exactly the aim of the conversation today. We're going to step back and talk about what a next-gen city is, my words, or a smart city. And in doing so, we'll be covering topics which I believe can easily be extrapolated into different applications within the practice of law or an in-house role. We'll touch on things to do with innovation, the human-centered approach, speculative design, and a whole host of other things. And I have two amazing guests who are joining me today. Matt and Ruben are both joining me from Japan. Matt, thank you for joining me. Ruben, thank you for joining me. Matt, would you mind uh, kicking things off? Just uh, give the audience a flavor of um, what you do and who you are.
1: Sure. I'm originally from New York City, but I have a global experience of innovation and design entrepreneurship and also uh, design education and uh, design thinking Education both for students of all ages as well as for corporations and professionals. At the moment, I am a professor with my own design research lab at KO University at one of their graduate schools called KO Media Design, KMD for short. And our themes that we focus on are circular design, the circular economy, and also a long-going, ongoing research project on innovation itself. How do cities like New York City and San Francisco and Silicon Valley are always pointed out as being uh, these hotbeds of innovation, and uh, people are always trying to, when we talk about even smart cities or regional redevelopment, how to create innovation centers. And uh, it's quite a complex project, so I'm trying to research what uh, factors can be quantified that actually foster innovation.
0: And I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of that as we continue talking. And Ruben, what about you? Can, would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Yes, of course. I'm originally from Spain. I came here to, to Japan one year and a half ago and working with, with Matthew in, as a researcher in Sankara, in K University. And I also have the, the pleasure to work with him in Sankyu. Sankyu is a consult agency, and I'm in charge of all all the issues that are connected with the smart cities and also the European uh, technological market and data. So yes, this is what uh, I am doing right now.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And uh, I think you and I got connected because uh, once in your life, you were a lawyer and you focus on privacy issues as well. So uh, I guess for those that aren't familiar with the topic, because I certainly was not, I think I'm a bit better worse now. Uh, Would you mind just starting us off with what is a smart city and if that's even the right word to use?
2: Yes, of course. So, to be honest, okay, the concept of, of the smart city came from the beginning of this uh, century and uh, the 2000, from 2010, we started to talk about sus- the city that should be sustainable, a city that uh, should take care of the environment. And from there, the concept continue moving forward to the smart city. Uh, well, as a smart city, if in short words, is just a city that we are going to put a technological layout on it. This is the basic concept: is the application of the technology to create or to do a better city. Of course. My opinion, and also the opinion uh, of uh, different authors and different researchers, etc., they think that the concept of a smart city is not a smart city, it's not the best concept to talk about what, or to, to describe what are going to be the cities for the next generation, as you said before. At the same time, speaking about from the city science, if you think, for example, about technology, and city. We, for, we, we forgot about the basic element and the basic concept of the city. If you, if, if you, if you study the etymological roots of the word city, came from civilization. City came from the Latin civ- uh, civitas, that means community member, and that means citizenship. At the end of the day, it means people. And with the a small city, and if we just think about a city that we are going to put a technological layout on it, we are going to forget the main character of the city, that are the inhabitants of the citizens. So, from there, you know, these are the problems that we can, we, we can start to see with the concept of the smart city.
0: It's good to have the background into where the word city comes from. And yeah, absolutely, it's about having the humans there. And one of the links that you had shared with me the first time we spoke was around. This concept of a 15-minute city, which certainly resonated with me. And I'll include the, the talk in the show notes for this for anyone who wants to know. And it, it's around the reconciliation of, of the city as an infrastructure with the humans that live in it. And yes. um, Matt, when we, we had a chat, I think a week or so ago in preparing for this, and one of the, one of the tidbits I wrote down as we talked around why it matters to have a smart city or a next-gen city. And where my mind went to is, it's great to have this technological layer, but the pace of change in technology means that you're always going to have obsolescence, which is true for business, it's true for the environment and the world. And Matt, I think you put it best, and I'll give you full credit for this, which is it's not about it's not about predicting the future but making good decisions so yeah. could you expand on that a little bit how does one do that when part of this part of that has to be <laughs> predicting or at least forecasting what the future might be without with the big unknown of you don't know how quickly things might change and what you don't know you don't know. How do you think yeah. about that as you think about cities? I
1: think I'm going back even rewinding a little bit more about the word smart city. Yeah. One of the focuses I also teach is branding. A smart city is a brand or a buzzword. Governments can... Focus their efforts on moving resources to new technology or to improvements. If there's corruption, basically it, it backfires, and in the where they're putting money into technologies that are already obsolete, for example, or they're playing catch up. A lot of it, what you see on a paper and what people are doing is to just bring technology that already exists into government structures that are a little bit behind. So that's why it's uh, often a little bit uh, late. But when we spoke last week and I can expound on again, the real focus for any development, no matter what buzzword you use, should be efficiencies, um, how to create efficiencies and how to create systems that allow people to thrive. So if that requires a new technology, then you shouldn't worry about when it's going to be obsolete. If it's going to be helpful in the timeline that you can implement it, then you should definitely do that but the problem is a lot of times they're not really thinking of efficiencies and people are always batting uh, against like different uh, corporate concerns like for example we all here could probably agree that having access to the internet should probably be treated like access to clean water and clean air it probably shouldn't should be something that the is either regulated as a utility and not as a, some kind of a profit center for a telecommunications company. But this is very difficult to implement because of the, the structure of society, the way it is with big corporations. Yeah, I what I like to get people to talk about is what are efficiencies and what, what is the goal? Some cities get it right, but then they don't keep up with it. Tokyo is one of those places where people perceive it as being incredibly technologically advanced, But this is also like people perceiving New York as being incredibly dangerous, where New York was incredibly dangerous in the 70s, 80s and 90s, but it's the safest city in the U.S. for many years. So the impression is quite old. And Tokyo was incredibly technologically advanced in the 90s, but they have not kept up. So they invested very heavily in fiber optics um, and... It's not that fiber optics are obsolete. It's just that now we have 5G and, and no one could predict that the in the 90s that the explosion of the smartphone and portable Wi-Fi and, and how easy it would be to have a wireless society. But when you look at it about efficiencies, it's not like people weren't predicting that. It's just it wasn't the common area that people were investing in. It was Those were really hot stocks in the 90s, uh, fiber optic companies, and then they all collapsed.
0: It, it sounds like... It's finding that balance of listening to those that are actually keeping the finger on the pulse, so to speak, around innovations. And innovations doesn't always mean technology. And I think we can dig into that a little bit with some of the example cities that you talked about before, but also finding that balance between what's required to create something sustainable and the regulation, right? Because eventually it will need to be regulated. Most things end up being regulated in some way or another, but there needs to be enough freedom. Perhaps you're in the growth stage, perhaps you're in the early stage with some form of structure so actually, if the, the alpha beta phase, the experiment is successful, there is a path for it to continue to thrive. So yeah, I think that would be interesting. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, and this comes up in the legal profession all the time, when people think about innovation, their mind always goes to technology first. And that's important, but it's a way of achieving an outcome. You have to understand what you want to achieve.
1: That is something that I've built my career is uh, that people are always exactly what you said they have an expectation of innovation with technology if there's no new iphone or new pixel phone or new tablet from you know microsoft then the company is not doing their job keeping up on innovation and uh, my brand uh, since is on hiatus nuka the concept there was to take the whole concept of innovation and the revolution of interface design and bring it to simple physical products and simple processes what kind of efficiencies can you create through by simplifying language. People talk about technology, but if, if your messaging is still overly complicated, especially if we refer back to the legal yeah. system, one of the things, oh, here, I'm gonna go off on one of my tangents. People talk about Japanese. Uh, they say that the uh, Japanese as a language is very difficult because it's very vague and abstract. But since I'm bilingual in English and Japanese, I could tell you that Japanese grammatically and structurally is perhaps one of the most exact languages in the world. You could say exactly what you want. It's, there's a difference between synthetic language and logical language, but I won't get into linguistics. <laughs> but the thing that makes Japanese so abstract and, and difficult to communicate is not the, the grammar and the actual language itself, it's just culturally Japanese people do not. It's an island nation. People have, Tokyo reached a population of a million before London or New York did. Its uh, personal space is viewed very differently here than in other countries. So that affected the way people communicate and they started using their language in a very non-direct way. So people think that because Americans are so direct that they think that English is a very direct and succinct language. But my hypothesis is that the reason there are so many more lawyers per capita in the US is a linguistic problem, is that it's very difficult to communicate exactly in English. Like to to write sentences where you understand who is the subject, who is all the different parts of a complex uh, issue. If you don't have a lawyer, you can't write language in a way that's very succinct and very exact. So the reality is counterintuitive. Like Americans are direct, but the language is not really direct. English is actually a very difficult language to write super right. complex ideas in a direct way. Yeah, for sure. In that sense, yes, exactly. The focusing on technology only is quite misguided, for example. And then to bring it back to what, what is innovation, right? When you look at what is innovation, this is, a, if you rely if you soar, purely on the technology, especially in the context of smart cities, you're totally going to miss, them. you have all these Regional cities that have these smart city initiatives, and they think that we're just going to have this technology. And we see this now everywhere, actually. Oh, let's build innovation centers. So you build these big buildings uh, with co working spaces and high speed internet, and they think that people are going to move to their city. And that's without analyzing the simple, like, why do people live in Chicago or New York? We've done surveys with our research lab. Right. And it's they want to have access to live music, they want to have access to museum shows. It's not the access to the technology that makes people gravitate to these innovation centers. And if a government misses this point, it doesn't matter how much investment you're gonna put into your internet infrastructure or whatever new, you know, buzzword technology there is, you're just not your goal is not going to be, you're not gonna be successful reaching your goal. So yeah. it's also important to articulate the goal. And that's also you could do that without technology. And so as
0: technology becomes more ubiquitous, then it doesn't it's no longer the thing that people are basing their livelihood decisions on it's the cultural elements and uh, i think that's what you're getting to that's the mm-hmm. thing that's unique about different places and people may cool. want a certain type of lifestyle and they are more willing to move because of that um Ruben, from your perspective, I'm curious, how does privacy fit into one of those things? And as I did my research, I don't want to just, I think it's important to think about all of these topics. But certainly, one of the items that comes across as backlash is if you think about smart cities, especially as people think about in order to do that, in order to know what the citizens want, what the individuals want, to make sure things are working, there needs to be a level of measurement, there needs to be a level of Perhaps monitoring, which in the environment that we are in today, that does not go down well generally. So, how does you know? How do you design something where you do want to leverage the data, but without being so impeding?
2: Yes. Okay. The citizen or the inhabitant needs to be in in contact, in direct contact with the with administration mm-hmm. of the city. So to create a, a flow of of communication between them, and this is one of the main points of a human centered city. Of, let's talk about a new city or a city that thinks about the, uh, the inhabitants. First of all, we need to, talk, we need to say that in a, a new generation of cities so, or the cities that we want to, to build right now, focusing in the, in the inhabitants, we have to think about the data, but not the private data. So the data should be open. Uh, we need to think about transparency. We need to think about uh, open government. And we need to think about the reutilization of the data. So this is one uh, topic. And the other topic is, as you said right now, how we are going to keep the privacy of our citizen. And to be honest, a simple question, a simple answer is to create systems based on privacy by design. So uh, as the GDPR, it's uh, an amazing tool that we can use to create all the schemes to protect our citizens in the city and all over the world. It doesn't matter, the GDPR is a tool for for Europe or creating Europe for Europe and also for the rest of the world, of course, that has a contact with uh, European people. But if you start to take all the points of the GDPR based on the privacy by design and privacy by default, then you have the answer. So all the different tools, applications, or ways to communicate between citizens and administration should be based in these principles. At the same time, we shouldn't forget something that also the smart city is a problem of the smart city concept. When we talk about the smart city, we are forgetting a, a part of the people that because of the digital gap, or let's talk about, for example, all population, all people that cannot access... To the technology not because they cannot access it because they don't have enough incomings or they don't have the infrastructure it's because they don't know how to use it right. so we need to think also uh, in a city let's talk about a human center city we need to think about create places forums hubs that we can integrate all the people and not left anyone outside mm-hmm. so Yes, I, I I wanted to bring here to the table because you talk about data and we are talking about uh, e privacy, yeah. but at the same time there are like there are more basics problems with the concept of, of the smart city. Yeah. For example, this one that using technology we are we are like doing some kind of discrimination mm-hmm. of a part of the population. And for example, here in Japan, a lot of people, most of the population, and Matthew, please. Uh, I'm sure that you're so much better than me, this, the the population is really old. So they cannot access so many times to the technology. So we need to have, always, backups and plan Bs to, to hack,
1: to... Include
2: all this to embrace to all the community, citizens, inhabitants.
1: That's also super interesting. I don't want to go off topic, but and we talked about obsolescence and things, and also I could give you insights from the types of projects graduate students are working on globally. And they put a lot of energy into exactly this issue like how to get senior citizens to be more technologically savvy. The thing I point out to them uh, is that I'm 56 years old, so it's not unimaginable timeline to think of me being a senior citizen. And I'm of a generation, the first generation, that's really quite technologically savvy. So you might be putting all this energy into creating systems for an aging population that only needs that support for the next 10 years. And then they're going to be locked in that mindset again. Like the whole idea of what is a senior citizen that has to evolve as well. But back to Japan, you're right. Japan is having an interesting problem from both sides. They're extremely reliant on paper. The government just two weeks ago put out an announcement that all all ministries have to get rid of fax machines by 2023, yes. like for example. So that's a good move. But then the more things that you force to happen online or via smartphone, there is going to be this period. And I'm saying it's probably going to be about a period of 10 to 15 years where there is going to be a segment of the population is going to have a problem accessing mm. Of these services. And there's going to be a lot of social issues around that. You have to be able to see the problem like Ruben illustrated it and be able to, as a government, to provide the services for every type of yeah. Citizen. And that's definitely not happening. People going all digital, and then a lot of people are left behind. The digital divide in countries like the US and Japan are actually there are people that can't afford a cell phone. There are people that yeah. cannot afford home internet. And this issue is not getting enough attention. And at the beginning of the talk, I mentioned it should be treated like a utility, like mm. water and air. It's like everyone should have access yeah. to internet.
0: It sounds like then there's, well, in Ruben, just to rip off what you said, it, it sounds like there's multiple things. One is is privacy is important data is important but that's one of a multitude of problems that need to be solved for there's a wider issue of accessibility if i'm understanding both of you correctly and that's actually as you're thinking about the next gen city you also have to think about who is the inhabitant of that next gen city and you need to plan for that but also the current generation and i'm a child of the 80s and i remember when i was a young boy so long ago that I, I was typing text messages by having to press like a crazy person on numbers to get the right letters up, right? Where it costs you money to text like that. And that's a world that I can't really imagine anymore, based on how quickly you can type on your phone and work on your phone. And if many people are smarter than me and those that were thinking about that kind of stuff at, at that time. They, most of them weren't predicting that. So you don't know how quickly the technology is going to evolve. And, you know, I see my parents sometimes they can't type at the rate that a teenager today can. So how do you plan for things like that when you're doing communication by text, for example, right? You need to be able to make sure it's accessible to a whole bunch of things. Is there a city or a set of cities that are doing any of these things? Is there a a proven case for if you create a next gen city, whatever that might mean, that it leads to some sort of successful ROI for the government, for the citizens? If, if I
2: can bring my, the example of Malaga, that is my city from Spain, the south of Spain. And when we were designing the, the smart city in, in Malaga, we thought about, okay, we have a core uh, group of population that they are going to use the smartphone and they're going to use the new uh, different tools. But at the same time, we have a lot of old people also that they cannot access so that is why uh, we designed and we thought okay we are going to create spaces in public buildings to have meetings to talk with them to explain to them everything so the same that we are doing in the application the app we are going to do but face to face so they can vote with a piece of paper and they came to us and tell what they need so for me this is the smart city of Malaga right now is not an example of a success, a smart city. But at the same time, they were like different different examples of different uh, initiatives that are really interesting and we can use in general. Like this is the one. And for me, that's the real point.
1: Yeah. Oh, I don't want to throw your flow off, but can I go back to the privacy question? Yeah, yeah please. as well? I think also back to evolution and innovation, the concept of privacy is really evolving. I think yeah. what, especially in Japan, Japan is definitely behind in, in a lot of privacy legislation uh, compared to Europe. I think America is somewhere in the middle, but what they're finding when they do studies and surveys of the general population, people don't really care about privacy. We're getting to the point finally with social evolution. I forget which, which politician this was, but it came out, they, they released some like s and photos and he was smart enough and we're at, at a level where he said, yeah, I'm into s and big deal. And the media finally wrote back and said, yeah, he's into s and big deal. Let's focus on policy. So you need some social evolution, but I think the, what's really lacking in terms of the privacy discussion is no one's discussing, okay, if people really don't care about privacy, which they really don't. If celebrities or people, their nude photos get leaked, it really doesn't damage your life anymore. It's just not what the idea of privacy has, it has evolved. But the real (laughs) issue that's not getting enough attention is security, cybersecurity, for example. Like, uh, it's okay if you're sharing a lot of information, but that should not compromise your bank account. That should not compromise your credit score. It shouldn't compromise your ability Mm -hmm. Uh, to apply for visas or your driver's license. And that's the issue, is I think that you're going to see a lot of the privacy concerns being replaced by security concerns. It's not like people are not working on that. I'm not saying they're not. But I think that, again, I think the privacy discussion is getting, it's just getting a little bit old because I just don't think it's as important as security. Even though it's mixed up and they're, they're, they're certainly... They're
0: intertwined as well, because of course you need to be, if you have top-notch security, then you worry a lot less about privacy or certainly your loss of privacy as it might be. But you're right. The perspective is definitely changing. Um, so I'm conscious okay. of time. I would love to talk a little bit about your lab. So either one of you tell, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess in a nutshell, what's the purpose? What does it do? And then I, I have a bucket full of questions uh, off the back of that.
1: Oh, sure. I'll start then. The main focus is circular design. The university, the grad school that we're at, the mission is to find innovations that improve society at the intersection of design, technology, and policy. So there's a very strong policy uh, focus. So that's the theme, that's the mission. And the Circular Design Lab, we're the one lab that focuses on uh, material science and uh, physical design, as well as, like I mentioned earlier, a focus on what is innovation, how do you create an environment that fosters innovation? So we have quite a few research topics, but those two main those two main tracks. and uh, so the students are working on, uh, a lot of different topics, but they all fit thematically into the one of those two buckets, for example. One of the problems also when that smart cities get involved is when you're in a university setting or you talk to companies, especially in Japan, there seems to be an innovation deficit. You see this everywhere that companies want uh, employees uh, and innovation groups and What's happened that's really, uh, I guess, uh, another thing to mention is it's really hard to hire really talented people now because everyone gravitates towards the big tech companies, the really talented programmers. They would like to work at Apple or Google, for example. So Mm -hmm. how do you compete, not just as a city, how do you compete as a company or even as a university? How do you get top researchers? How do you get these people if you're not creating an environment that is attractive to people that our innovators, right? So that's basically what we're trying to do at, our, at the right. lab.
0: But so but before I forget, just curious as you think about. Fostering innovation, and certainly, I'm thinking of fostering innovation in complex environments, which certainly cities are. What, what are some of the ways, or what some of the ideas that people have come up with in how to enable that? I'm assuming it's to do with building a culture, so you're actually attracting the right talent, as you were talking about. But yeah, you know, what I, I'm not expecting there to be concrete answers here. But you know what are some of the ideas that people come up with?
1: There actually are concrete answers. Like the 15-minute fi- 15, 15 city is a very simple concept. You should mm-hmm. be able to do your shopping within a 15 minute walk or commute and the thing that makes it difficult if you look at a city like Los Angeles or Tokyo where the distances are quite big but New York and San Francisco and uh, London and Paris, uh, Barcelona, they're, they're already physically 15 minute cities so it's, it's not like a new thing but then it's like a chicken and an egg. Right? Can you recreate, is that recreatable? Is that a reproducible strategy? Can you reproduce that with technology? These are the design challenges, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that actually for innovation that governments outside of the U S ignore, and there's so many studies that show that when you, if you want to foster innovation, you have to have diversity. You have to have diversity of thought. You have to have diversity of experience. You have to have diversity of people. Now, if you're in a country that limits immigration or only has visas for people working in finance, then you're not going to create a a human community that's diverse. So you're missing, you're totally missing the point. So those people tend to, they don't, the governments like Japan, I hate to call them out, but I am here. They're missing the boat on what diversity actually means. It it means uh, that you have to have great protections for LGBT rights. It's just, that's a standard thing in every G7 country. But Japan, yet when you tell them if you fix this, you will increase innovation. The people that could actually fix it, which are people at a high level of government, they're intransient and they don't fix it. But when you said is it simple? It is simple. Protect LGBT rights, allow a healthy amount of immigration to create diversity of people, and that creates the diversity of thought. And then also invest in cultural infrastructure so that there's a diversity of experience. Don't overregulate. And of course, all of this has become so difficult with Corona, with the COVID crisis, how the movement of people and cultural events and everything. And I think that it, but it might be a watershed moment. It might show that, yeah, you know what? This was really negative, a negative impact. the lack of
0: movement. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Some ramblings on this, because I think about this, I talk to people about this a lot. I I think you are right in that the solutions sometimes are simple. The execution is difficult. So it's getting there. And you talked about the 15-minute city. One of the other things, which I loved around the features of that 15-minute city was each square meter of the city is used and can serve a different purpose. And Ruben, you were talking about this, right? How one space can actually cater to different demographics and different functional uses yeah. so you're not wasting anything it's sustainable and it actually but that requires a lot of thinking it requires some brilliant design which of course is important
2: yeah exactly and but as uh, as Matthew uh, told before and also in the previous meeting is uh, a 15-minute city it's really it's, it's, it's a city that all cities should be 15 right. minutes if we are not living in a 15-minute city we are not living, really. We are not, we are not having all the rights like a citizen because our, we are wasting money, we are wasting time, we are wasting, at the same time, the administration is wasting energy, et cetera. And working again to the innovation is what uh, What I'm completely agree with, with Muffis. If we don't bring the diversity, we cannot have innovation. And at the same time, the, uh, the, 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 uh, a human-centered city push the uh, innovation ecosystem to, the, to 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 be better because look we have to answer problems every day we are trying to be resilient with the technology so we are an open source technology in words of in the words of at the end of the day everything is connected
1: mm. yeah that's also a important point about the 15 minute city i was talking about diversity and i forgot to mention one of the other key components to foster innovation is collaboration. And it's very hard to collaborate if it's very hard to get from point A to point B. And if you're not creating opportunities to interact with other people, whether it's planned. And then the other thing uh, that's also often researched is these happenstance moments, so these creating these interstitial spaces where happenstance can happen. And that's where innovation happens, where you... And some people get it. Like I have to say, I'm part of a community here in Tokyo where we have a co-working space called Shibuya Qs. And what's very different about what they do, they curate the people actively. So there's actually a people curator there every day who notes, because you check in with facial recognition, technology, great, no key cards. But the technology is great because the curator gets a list of everyone who's in the space in real time. And they are trained to think, okay, Mr. Waldman would really benefit from meeting this person. They're working on similar projects. Mm -hmm. And the curators go around every day and they say, oh, do you have time to chat? And they ask, what are you working on? And they take notes and then they curate the people. They're like, oh, you're here today. If you have time later, I'd like you to meet this person. If you don't have the diversity of the people, you can't make that work, but you also have to create these spaces where people can interact. And that's hard to do if it's not a 15 minute city.
0: Perfect. And so we only have a handful of minutes. What's your ask of the audience? What can they help you guys accomplish? Uh, Is it about raising awareness about projects, research topics that you're working on? Is it funding? Where should people go and what should they do?
1: We are definitely looking for funding. We want people and organizations to help fund the continuation of the innovation research. We really want to quantify these factors mm. and create very interesting and compelling articles and infographics around. So funding is definitely a major issue, especially since educational and academic institutions in Japan get very little institutional funding. Mm. Uh, that's a cultural problem we could talk in another <laughs> podcast. And the other thing is even to just support... Support The research is like, for example, anyone that has a wonderful network on any of these topics, like Mm. when we're doing surveys, for example, to get it out to the right people, for example, that doesn't cost any money. is very helpful to be able to get people that are actually experts in certain fields, especially we didn't really touch on sustainability as much as we talked about diversity, but sustainability is going to be one of the number one issues, Mm. for example. So we're very interested in connecting with the material science people, also the legal and regulatory. There's so many issues around. You see it in the US and Japan, not not, not so much, but Europe as well, where you have too much legal overprotection of proprietary information. Like for example, in Europe, they're like, you can't call this cheese, this kind of cheese, or that type of argument is now um, going to like the actual materials themselves, like saying Beyond Meat cannot call themselves meat. Because it's not an animal product so these are like regulatory issues that we're super interested in so if there's anyone working in that space as well for research or researchers but uh, yeah uh, ruben you can add because
2: i think not so much to add but as as you said yes we need uh, we need help we need fundraising and with all the new projects that we want to develop innovation project city science projects and everything that we have already on that we are working on yes first of all we would like to yeah we would like to reach out companies institutions that they are keen to help us with fundraising but at the same time as matthew said it's very important for us to be part of the community in the different studies of research that we are having we are doing to create a network or to be in network to connect the dots also for us is very important so we have these two had said to request fundraising and also connections.
1: And th- that's for the academic side. We mm. also have a consulting company called We uh, with product design and branding and mission statements and uh, also with market entry for Japan. Japan is a super interesting market. So we do consulting on what uh, types of uh, research is happening in Japan that's not being commercialized. For example, um,
0: for my core audience, which is legal professionals, I'll make that connection that... Almost all law firms and all in-house companies are focused on doing some sort of a social good and thinking around what does the future look like from a sustainability perspective so actually if it's not for that and many of the listeners have vast networks if academic funding isn't the top thing on your priority list then actually the network itself can be really beneficial and from a corporation point of view that's really important because a lot of the firms I work with as well and others I know are working in that listen to this podcast they have international reach right they have uh, big offices in Asia PAC they have offices that are are in Japan, in fact, and or are trying to expand into Japan. So I think a lot of what you said certainly could be quite beneficial. And yeah. I, I know, Matthew, one of the things that stood out to me the last time we spoke, which we didn't get a time to touch on, was the whole point of quantifying all this information is so you can actually start showing return on investment from this thing, right? So there has right. to be some connection to a business value prop from all of this going on.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing to mention, I'm fully bilingual. so. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. The thing also with the legal profession that's uh, you're right we don't have enough time is I was so excited about the green deal in the EU and then then very depressed about watching the news of how it's getting watered down when it gets closer to implementation but I think if lawyers are more educated on these subjects they can convince their clients better that for the short term interest is actually detrimental. If you look at what's happening in the petrochemical space, eventually it's going to be much more highly regulated. It's not happening fast enough. But if the legal counsel in these corporations can, like you said, quantify and show them that well, this might have some short-term pain or this, your shareholders might not like this, but if you don't do this, you're not going to be in business in 20 years. So that's, And I think that often the legal team people look at the marketing team, the marcoms, and the executives for a lot of this type of direction. I'm a, very strange as a designer and a creative. I'm very well-versed in legal issues. Like I'm from, because of my own process with design, physical design and trade dress and trademarks and what having to do with Madrid protocol and internationally and technology patents and utility patents. I really always respected the legal teams within the, when I did work in the corporate world, mm-hmm. I was the creative director at Reuters at one point, they had an excellent legal team. So I think that lawyers can be a wonderful force for good.
0: Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, perfect. Yeah. And so in the show notes, I'll certainly link to both of your LinkedIn profiles, as well as to, to thank you and also to Samkara as well Hello. and if there's that's anything awesome. else and then I'll be more than happy to include that but thank you so much both if you appreciate your time a great conversation for me and I have multiple pages of notes thank you again for coming on thank you so much so that's it for today I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did recording it if you enjoyed this episode, then you will most definitely enjoy the newsletter, which provides snackable bites on innovation, transformation, and knowledge management each week. Subscribe for free at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. Be sure to check out the show notes, which you can find at our website or wherever you are listening to this podcast. The show was produced for Fringe Legal by yours truly, Abijat Sowersworth special thanks to Ruben Fernandez bella and Matthew Orbman for the time and for a wonderful conversation. Until next time, stay well.